0: Thanks for tuning into to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you, no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. Well, this morning, we're gonna continue in our series from the book of Colossians called Made for More. In fact, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. Yeah, we're still in the book of, of chapter number one of this book after going into our fourth week. But while you're doing that, let me say that Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, where he is encouraging them to stay grounded in Christ. It's a passionate letter that he writes to them, where he pleads to all the believers there to not be lured away from the truth about who Jesus is and what he he offers us. He says, don't be led astray by following a different kind of a message. And the reason he said that is because as what we've learned over the last several weeks is that this church was being misled by some man-made traditions as well as just some downright bad theology. And Paul therefore is writing them to keep them focused on Christ, because as I've said every week of this series, Christ is enough. He is all sufficient for our lives, and he is all sufficient for any kind of need or situation that would come up in our daily life. You know, the Apostle Paul has spent most of this first chapter reminding them of the truth of the blessings of our Lord that come through Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to continue on in his letter from chapter 1, verse 24, on through chapter 2, verse 5. But before we do, I want to give you just a little bit of added perspective on Paul at this point in his life. He is writing this letter from prison. He is incarcerated. What is he in jail for? For proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ the government that Paul lived under in Rome saw preaching as a threat to to their government, because in Rome, their uh, emperors were considered gods. So to preach Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords was like treason against the government. And therefore, at times, people like Paul would get arrested, And what I find very interesting is is what you'll see right out of the shoot in verse, the first verse we're going to read today, is that Paul says he rejoiced in his suffering. And this is what I love about the Apostle Paul. He's rejoicing while in jail and while trying to write this letter. He rejoices in experiencing many of the same things that Jesus experienced, because he knows what Jesus experienced and what he's experiencing and his life is going to mean the salvation for many, many more people. So this is the mindset of Paul who is being used greatly by God in sending this letter to this church in Corinth, or excuse me, in Colossae that greatly needs to hear this truth. So let's read together Colossians 1 verse 24 through 2 verse 5. I'm rereading this morning from the New International Version. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know, How hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you, by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Let me ask you, if you were to have read that passage this morning while you were doing your own personal devotions, what would you have gotten out of that text? There are sentences in that scripture that I think are easy to understand, and yet there are others that aren't as clear. You see, when I initially read scriptures, I don't always get what the writer is getting at myself. And, and what, I, what I do, and I, and I and I'm also think of people in this church that might be new believers, and I wonder how hard it might be for you to read and understand this. So let me tell you something that has helped me and continues to help me. Whenever I look at a scripture, that I don't fully get, I will reread it three, four, five different times. And I will also read it in different translations, because that tends to help me out a lot. And then what I do is I pick out key words found within that scripture. And in this scripture, I see several words that stick out in my mind. I see the words affliction, suffering, mystery, And then there's that word commission. And then I try to see how they relate to to one another to help me to better understand what it means. Look at the word suffering for a moment. In verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Paul also mentions afflictions. And then in verse 29, he says this, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He's saying that he is laboring with all of his strength with all of his ability. And then in chapter two, verse one, he says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Another translation says, I am struggling for you. So there's just got to be something about suffering and afflictions and struggling because it appears too many times in this text for it not to be relevant. And then there's that word mystery. I see it in this scripture three different times, so there's got to be something to that as well. But the one that really popped out to me, and even when I read it, you might have skimmed right over it, it was the word commission. What does that mean? Well, when you are commissioned, you are giving marching orders by someone to do a particular job, a particular task, to work on a particular project. And anything that has to do with God presenting a, a marching orders to anybody, you'd better pay attention to it because it's a really big deal. So I want to start this morning by talking about Paul's commission. And then we will get back to those suffering passages near the end of this message. The commission that Paul has received, he has received from the Lord. And do, do any of you remember exactly where and when Paul received his commission? It was on the road to Damascus, and it's found in Acts chapter 9. If you want to turn there with me, you can, because we're going to read the entire chapter. If not, you can follow along on the screen behind me. We'll have it in its entirety. I want to find out how Paul wound up with his commission, his calling, his marching orders, if you will, from the Lord. It starts out by calling him Saul, because that was Paul's name before his conversion. And if you don't know this, Paul, formerly Saul, was a great persecutor of the early New Testament church, and this is what is so awesome about not only his conversion, but his commission from our Lord. So let's read this together, Acts 9 verses 1 through 19. It says, Meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that was followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he, couldn't see, he could not see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So three days after the Lord knocks him off of his horse, Paul was commissioned by God to carry the name of Jesus primarily to the Gentiles. And it's clear that he's going to have to suffer in order to do so. That brings up an interesting question that I would like to pose to you this morning. If Paul was knocked off his horse and saved in one day, and then he receives his commissioning three days later, and then he immediately goes out about pursuing it, how normal do you think that kind of thing is in the Christian experience? I talk to a lot of people who know the specific date and time and location of where they received their salvation. But once you give yourself to Jesus, the next really important thing that ought to be happening is that you receive a commissioning or a calling from God. In the church, we do very well talking about salvation, which is certainly the most important thing. But we talk seldom about a person's commission or their calling from God. So if I were to ask you how much time passed from the day that you received salvation to the time of your commissioning, the time when you kind of knew what your calling was, some of you who understand what I'm talking about might say, well, it was in the first several months, it was in the first year, it it took five years. I don't know what your answer would be. But I think that the vast majority of people in the modern day Church of Jesus Christ would say, I don't even know what a commissioning is let an O know that I have ever received it. Well, personally for me, it took several years when I sensed a dramatic calling from God in my life to leave the business world and to go into full-time ministry. The question I'm trying to get to is this. Do you believe that every Christian, every follower of Jesus Christ has a calling? Yes or no? (laughs) I... Based upon your lack of response, maybe you don't know. If you read the writings of Paul, you will have to conclude that he believed that every follower of Jesus receives a commissioning from God. And all throughout his writings... In the New Testament, he instructs leaders like Timothy and Titus to pursue their callings. He encourages them to fulfill their commissions before God. At the same time, he castigated people like Demas and Alexander because they uh, abandoned their call. He calls them out saying that nobody should ever abandon their calling. One thing is for sure, everyone who is born again, believer in Jesus Christ, receives a commissioning of some sort. The only question becomes, will a person actually carry it out? Will they do it with all their might? Will they carry it out no matter the price that they have to pay? That is what this means to the apostle Paul. What about Jesus? Jesus once looked at his followers, and he said in Luke 9 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Take up your what? Pick up your cross. What is that? That cross is your calling. That's your commissioning. Jesus' cross was a wooden one, and it involved the redemption of the world through his atoning sacrifice. Today, his followers' crosses are certainly much more diversified, much more varied than his. But suffice to say, Jesus expects every single one of his followers to find their role in the redemptive effort that is going on in this world, and he expects us to take up our cross, or take up our calling, and to be faithful to it, even if it costs us something. Jesus' cross cost him his life, and he is not uncomfortable at all with you or I experiencing some difficulties, or experiencing some cost for us to carry ours as well. And in some cases, even in the modern day world, some people's price of carrying their cross can also mean death for them. Now to say the obvious here, it's more than just pastors that receive callings. When someone who is not a part of the clergy says to me, well that's for you guys, I think to myself, you've got to be kidding me, right? Because as I read the Word of God, on the day of Pentecost, everyone in that upper room had a flame of fire land over their head, and everyone in that upper room spoke in other tongues. They spoke in another language. Likewise, everyone receives spiritual gifts. I think Jesus and Paul would say, yes, everyone receives a commission or a calling. Jesus told everyone that he spoke to, find out what your cross is in the overall scheme of this life and carry it like I carried mine. Here's the second question. How long should it take from the time of your conversion to the time that you receive your commission or your calling? Three days like Paul? Weeks? Months? Years? I think that really opens up to an even deeper question. Whose ultimate responsibility is it to make your calling, your calling, clear? Is it God's responsibility to knock you off your horse one day? To blind you and to send a messenger to lay hands upon you and tell you what your calling is? Is it all on God to reveal this calling to you? Like right now, if you are sitting in this auditorium or if you are watching us online and you say to yourself, I'm saved but I don't have a clue what my calling is, you can't just excuse yourself from this conversation and say, it's not my problem because God hasn't made it clear to me yet. Because you play a part in this. So what do we have to do to get a calling out of God? Well, when Jesus told Paul that he he needed to go into the city and to wait, he went into the city and he fasted and he prayed. He didn't have any food or drink for three days. He was preparing the whole time. God, please show up. Please give me some marching orders. What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? I believe a major part of the responsibility of a calling falls on us. There is certainly a part that God plays and heaven plays in this, but there's a part that we have to play. I think what we need to do is we need to lower all the static and all the noise that's constantly coming into our minds and our heads through all kinds of different sources. And I think that we need to enter into a serious time of prayer and fasting. Beyond that, I think we need to search out and deploy the spiritual gifts that God has given us because often the deployment of your gifts will eventually lead you to identifying what your ultimate calling is. Here's the deal. We are all supposed to be towel-bearing servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to envision the waiter with the towel dropped over their arm, just waiting to, to eagerly serve. We have all been given spiritual gifts. Every single one of you, bar none, And we must identify them. And then there comes a time when you utilize those gifts and you jump in and you serve in some way. I've rarely met anybody who started serving in kingdom work and wound up at the center of their calling the very first time. It generally doesn't work that way. You identify your spiritual gifts. You jump in and you serve there for a while. And then while you're doing so, you realize that you're learning things about yourself. You find out that you're passionate about. You find out that you're, you're good at it and it's God's, and God is blessing you through your involvement. Or conversely, you realize you're not passionate about it and it doesn't work out well and it doesn't feel right. So you jump over here and you serve in a different way and in a different capacity. And then you find yourself using the same spiritual gifts over there, but then God may reveal to you that you have additional gifts that you're using in this other area and you use it there then you serve in that capacity and you get a little bit closer. The point is often after several years and after several moves to different kind of ways that you can serve, you find the sweet spot of your calling. Most people know what it is and they clearly realize it when it comes. There's a sense where you say, I was born to do this. This is what God put me on this earth to do. It feels so right and I've received such joy in doing it. It becomes powerful in your life, and it doesn't mean you've got to change your professional career. You do this being a lay person serving in God's kingdom. You just realize that while serving in kingdom work, it's just right. It's the way that God hardwired you. He is using your passions. He is using your temperament. He is using your life experiences and your giftings, and they all work together for you to fulfill your calling. And you think to yourself, this is what I was meant to do. And it feels sweet every time I'm here. I wonder how many of you have ever gotten there. I wonder how many of you have even taken taken the time to test the waters to get there. Believe me, it is worth the experimentation. It is worth the migration that is sometimes necessary, and yes, even the frustration that comes along with it. Because the frustration will eventually gravitate you toward where the Spirit lets you know, now you're home. Now you're where you're supposed to be, doing what I need you to do. And once you get there, especially after you've served there for a long time, I think that God sometimes even renews your calling. When what you've been doing all of a sudden just doesn't feel the same, Maybe you're losing your passion over it. Maybe you're not being fulfilled. Let me just say, if you feel that way at any point about the way you serve in God's kingdom, then you need to pray and ask God to renew your calling. Just say, God, is this this really where you want me? Make it clear because I'm open, Lord. I'm open to how it is that you want to use me. I think there are times also when your calling can actually evolve. The Bible says that there is a season for everything under heaven. So after you've been serving in one capacity for a long time, God can change you. He can even change your circumstances. He may say, I'm changing the plan. I've got a new place, a new way for you to serve. And that can be scary because you thought you were going to be doing this the rest of your life. But God says, no, things have changed. I want you over here now. And I think there are times with certain people when God completely changes the whole landscape of your life. And He does that to move you into an entirely new area of service in His kingdom. What I'm trying to convey to all of you this morning is this. I want you to understand how important it is to be able to get up every day and say, by God's grace, And through what Jesus did on the cross for me, I'm saved and I know my commission. I know I'm still breathing air. I know that I am still alive and there is a purpose to my steps today. And I want all of you to be able to go through your day knowing what that commissioning work or plan of God is for your life. Paul says, I'll tell you what mine is. I was called to be a servant to the church. That's my calling. Silkscreen that on the front of my t-shirt. I'm to be a servant to the church. One time Jesus was asked, what did you come here to do? And in Luke 19 10, he said, for the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus was crystal clear about his calling. And so were others. Mother Teresa would have said, I'll tell you the reason I'm here. The reason I'm here is to serve the poorest of the poor. Billy Graham would have said, you know the reason I'm here? To preach Christ to the masses. Chuck Colson, if he were still around, he would say, the reason that I'm here is to bring the message of Christ to those who are behind bars, those who are in prison. Robert Pierce, the founder of of World Vision, he would say, the reason that I'm here is to feed starving children all around the world in the name of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen of High Point, to know and to live in your calling in Christ in your commission, it is a blessing from God and something you need to experience. It will grow you up in your faith like nothing else. It will keep you fulfilled. It will keep you hungry for more of what God has stored up for you. It keeps you focused on what is right. It creates passion within you, not to just fulfill your calling, but a passion for the overall message of the cross. And it gives you a desire and a passion to want to share it with others. So ask God for it. Submit your life to it and keep moving until you can say, this is what I was created for. Paul could do that. I think he set an an exceedingly great example for all of us to follow, all of us who have committed our lives to Jesus. Because once we have been saved, being a willing servant of his kingdom should naturally follow. Now I want to go on to the second part of this scripture. Paul's clear about his commissioning, but he says, I've got a couple other goals in mind. Let's look at verses 25 and 27 again. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me. And then he goes on with what he's supposed to do in his commission in terms of specific goals. He says, my goal is to present you, he means the Gentiles, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the people in the church of Colossae were mostly all Gentiles. And he says, here's what my specific goal for my commissioning is. I must communicate to everyone in all of the churches, in the Gentile churches, that what was once reserved for the Jews is now open to everyone. Christ can come, and here's the message. It is Christ in you. Gentiles, non-Jews, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's my goal, he says, for my commissioning to make this known to all people, that they too can receive Jesus Christ, and the doors of the kingdom are wide open to them. But he also says he has another goal, and after I let all the non-Jews and all the, all, all the Gentiles know that the door of the kingdom is wide open. Now he says in verses 28 and 29, he talks about his second goal. You can read along with me. He is the one we proclaim. He's talking about Christ. Admonishing and teaching. How many? Everyone with all wisdom so that we may present. How many? Everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Two goals, to make Christ known to the Gentiles, and secondly to grow them fully mature in Christ. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Jesus, just before he ascended to heaven, he said in the Great Commission that there are basically two things that have to happen. In my absence, between now and the time that I come back in my triumphant return, first, you have to go out and you have to tell a waiting world that Jesus can transform their life. You've got to reach people. And secondly, you've got to teach them to observe all that I have commanded of you. In other words, you've got to make disciples out of non-disciples. We should never be willing to settle nor was Paul, nor was Jesus, to simply lead people into a relationship with Christ and let them sit comfortably in that. This was never a part of Jesus' thinking, nor was it the Apostle Paul's thinking, and it's not a part of the thinking of your church as well. If you are a part of this church family, you have to understand that once you join the family of God, by the grace of Jesus Christ, it is the mission from Jesus and from Paul and from your pastor to grow you up into full devotion and nothing, le- in full devotion to Christ and nothing less than that is acceptable. 90% devotion to Christ is still 10% short. That's the way it's always been. That's the message from the scriptures of how we are to look at our Christian life. We are not to be sort of surrendered. We are to be fully surrendered. We are not to be sort of yielded. We are occasionally yielded. We are to be fully and consistently yielded to God. We're not to pick and choose our obedience by what feels good to us. We are to be completely obedient to His Word. We are not to turn a listening ear to heaven only when we have struggles and troubles going on in our life. No, we're to, we're to walk every day with our ear heavenward, listening to, to the Holy Spirit speak to us. If there is a whisper from the Spirit, if there is a prompting from God, I'm going to respond. I don't always have to res- understand it, but I'm going to respond to it. I'm going to be fully yielded. That is what this means. And this phrase in here about trying to present everyone perfect or complete doesn't mean that you're going to attain moral perfection this side of heaven. It's talking more about the state of being fully yielded and usable and useful before God. As I'm talking about this, every one of us, this should be our heart's cry, every single one of us, God, that's what I want to be. I want to be fully yielded. I want to be fully surrendered. I want to be fully obedient and fully capable of hearing the promptings from your spirit and not just hearing them, but acting upon them. Life is short and time, I think, is very short. We don't have a whole lot of time to get this right, church, so we ought to get at it now. We need to open ourselves up fully before our Lord. And as you do, you grow in your faith and and you mature spiritually and the full blessings of God flows into your lives. And then guess what happens? That's where the real adventure begins. That's when you fully yield yourself before God. That's where passion and excitement for a life lived for Jesus is generated from. It allows you to take your mind and your efforts and your worries and your concerns and your attentions off of yourself and on to other people and other circumstances. It's powerful, and it is liberating, and it's exactly what you and I need. That covers the commissioning part. Now I want to get back to the suffering part that I told you we'd get to. When talk, Paul talks about his commission and his goal, he says, but you know what? There's a price tag attached to it there's a cost involved. Look at verse 24 again. Now, when you read this, it might sound a little bit weird to you, but I think I can explain it. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. If Paul were standing on this platform before us today, I believe he would say, hey, High Point, listen to me. The kingdom of God never advances in a dark, sin-stained world unless somebody is willing to pay a price, unless someone is willing to take a hit. Here's the deal. You cannot go to higher levels of the expressions of the kingdom of God without someone paying a price. Paul says Christ's assignment, his calling, The redemptive atoning work that he accomplished couldn't have happened without the ultimate price that he had to pay. Jesus' experience was brutal in every sense, not just physically, but emotionally and and relationally as well. He endured suffering in order for the kingdom to advance. And there was nothing at all romantic about what happened to Jesus. It was what was necessary in order to overcome the evil in this world, the world that he came to save. And Paul goes on to say, for a church... In order for a church to move forward, in order for us to overcome evil, and to defeat the powers of darkness that are running rampant in our world today, a price will likewise have to be paid. Someone is going to have to do some dying to a carefree, problem-free life. Somebody is going to have to die to to self-absorption. Somebody is going to have to die to a personal lesser dream and become a part of the grand scheme of things. Someone is going to have to do a little bit of dying towards materialism and begin to honor God with their financial resources. Someone is going to have to die to the reckless, constant seeking of pleasure and self-indulgence. We are all going to have to put that serving towel onto our arm, just like the waiter does, and serve in our church and serve in the kingdom of God in order so that the message of Christ can prevail. Now, the interesting thing is that Paul says this. He says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering. He is talking about what is necessary for him to be a servant to the church. And that really kind of blows my mind. I would love to say to serve as your pastor comes at no cost to me. I would really like to lead you and teach you and try to inspire this church at zero cost to me personally. But I haven't been able to find a way. It always costs me something to serve. And I don't say that for you to feel sorry for me. I am blessed. I'm not saying that so you you will think that I am anything special, or that I'm asking for a pat on the back from you, because I'm not. Any person who yields their life to Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord, and engages in kingdom work, realizes that it is going to cost them something. It just does. It costs in your personal time. It costs in your personal resources. It costs emotions. It costs you sleepless nights. It often costs carrying around other people's burdens with you that they have shared with you as you minister to them. Last week, when I was sharing statistics from the Barna Institute about casual Christians, remember one of the points they said they believed in? That God is more interested in their comfort and prosperity than He was with their furthering of God's kingdom. And that's just plain wrong. Paul says that there is always a cost. Anyone who is a soul winner or anyone who takes church building, building a church is what I mean by that, seriously, it's always going to cost something to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to cost you something to serve in some capacity in this church. It's going to cost you something to provide the financial resources necessary for the church to move forward. It's going to cost you something to be the kind of person at work or at school who outwardly lives a life of holiness, because you're gonna take heat for that. The kingdom of God is never, it just never advances unless all of us are willing to do a little bit of dying to self. And this is a truth that we've got to be willing to accept and we've got to be willing to live by. But you know, the difference between Paul and me is that Paul says, I'm okay with it. I rejoice in the fact that I have to suffer in order for the churches to advance. And there are times, I'll be honest with you, that I'm not quite there. I wish I could say I rejoice in it all the time because I don't. But the idea is that we are all going to overcome, have to overcome the principalities and powers of darkness and evil. And the only way that's gonna happen is it's gonna have to cost us something. When We look at the, the cost that Jesus paid, his shed blood, and the cost that Paul paid, his own life. For us to think that we are going to advance God's kingdom at no cost to us, well, that is just wrong thinking. As I said earlier, Paul was writing this letter from prison. And he says in verse 29, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. What does he mean by that? He's saying, I want you to know I'm struggling for you and even for the other churches. I'm in prison here. I'm struggling to send you these letters. I don't have the best lighting. I don't have the best parchments. I'm struggling in my prayers for you. I'm struggling in knowing which leaders to send to which churches. I'm struggling to know what kind of finances I need to send this church or that church or the other church so that all the churches will be able to move ahead effectively for Christ. Paul is juggling all of these responsibilities from within the confines of a prison cell. And and get out of your mind what jails look like today. This was like a dungeon with bars on it. It was cold and wet, and you didn't get three square meals. People had to bring you food or you would die behind the bars. There was nothing good about this. The fact that he could even write a letter in that darkness is an amazing thing. So Paul's juggling all of this from within these these horrible conditions only after having been beaten and stoned and robbed and ridiculed and almost killed for his calling. You see, Paul, in case you haven't noticed, feels very deeply about his calling. He's willing to pay pretty much any price. And eventually, as we know, he was even martyred for it. And I'm here to tell you, church, this morning that we're all going to have to pay a price to fulfill our true callings in Christ Jesus. And the price varies, just like the callings do. But there will be a a, a price to be paid, and we have to step up and be willing to pay that price. There are places in the world right now where believers have to pay a much higher price than we do just to come to church. Christians are imprisoned in China. I'm told that many of them just disappear off the streets for being caught participating in one of the millions of underground churches. In Indonesia, it's like a scene of a, of a mob film. Pastors' cars are being bombed. And even church buildings are being bombed and lit on fire. There are places in this world where when you come to church to worship, you do so at the risk of your own life. Places where civil war and famine are going on that literally crushes the spirit of the men and women of God, and yet they find a way to still gather together, to get into the Word, to worship God, and to encourage each other through, through words and through the Psalms. In the Middle East, Christians are having their heads severed from their body. They're being decapitated. And, and the homes of Christians are having a mark put on them, so people can come back later to kill the Christians who live in there. Paul says, "Look." I'm willing to do this struggle because it's not all about me and it's not all about gutting it out. Look at verse 29. To this end again, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is not just suck it up. This is about opening yourself up to the power of God that is willing to work powerfully in you if you will allow it. You've got to quit being the bottleneck for God doing something powerful in and through you. It's a willingness to, to pay a price, to accomplish what God has called you and I to do. Liz, will you come forward and help me and close this down? I wanna read the rest of this text to you, and then I'm gonna close. Paul says, I'm willing to do all this struggling because in chapter, in, in chapter two, verses two, two through five, he says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. The reason that Paul did what he did The reason that I do what I do is found within that scripture. It's to build up men and women who make up the worldwide body of Jesus Christ. Encouraging you and teaching you to a full understanding of who Christ is and what a relationship with him entails in your daily life. Showing you all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge that is available to you through your faith in Christ Jesus so that you will be guided by sound theology and sound doctrine, and not be misled by everything that this world is going to throw at you to confuse you, so that you will stand firm in your faith, not just momentarily, but every moment of every day. My prayer for all of you is that you will walk strongly and and, and boldly And proudly in your relationship with Jesus as a disciple of Christ, and that His power will work powerfully in you so that you will not only be able to identify what your calling or your commission is, but but that you will fulfill that calling through the very one who redeemed you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the indwelling Holy Spirit that now lives within you. Would you all please stand to your feet for me? We all participated in communion earlier. And everybody was given an opportunity to either receive Jesus as Lord and Savior or to confess anything in your lives that might have not been pleasing to God. And my prayer is that everyone took advantage of of, of doing that. So so now I just want to end this service in a prayer. But I also want to say this, this altar is always open. You can come down here and pray. If you've got something you want to pray about and leave at the altar, leave it at the cross, you you can certainly do that. But I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you who are here and those who are watching online, that we would all have the courage to seek out what our commission or what our calling is if we don't know what it is. And for those of us who already know what it is, but maybe have been sitting on our hands and not doing what God has called us to do, that we would have the courage to step out and do what he's called us to do as the body of believers, as the body of Christ, the modern day church of Jesus Christ. God has given each one of us spiritual giftings. He didn't give us those so that we would identify what they are and just say, yeah, that's my spiritual gift. He gave those to us so that we would utilize him to further his kingdom. His kingdom entails much. In the context of Red Bluff, California, his kingdom is every soul that walks this city. And we know that we have many people in this town who do not know Jesus, and it is our job as followers of Christ to lead them into a redemptive relationship with Him. That is step number one. But then we need to disciple them. We need to show them the way. We need to show them how to grow in their faith. That's what we do as a church. You get them in, we will disciple them, and you will help disciple them. Because once you lead someone to Christ, they're going to be a part of your spiritual family for the rest of your life. They're going to come and seek you. They're going to ask you for advice. They're going to ask you for wisdom. That is a beautiful thing when someone comes and asks you for help in their journey. That means they see Christ in you. That means that they trust in your relationship with Jesus and that you're not gonna mislead them. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul. Man, when I look at his story of conversion, it's unlike any other. A man who who first persecuted the church, even was responsible for having some killed now became the greatest promoter of the church. Probably fulfilled more things than any ever have or ever will. But it's a shining example, Lord, of your power at work within us. Paul was no different than we are, Lord. We understand that, though we read about him in the scriptures and we go, oh, to be like Paul. And the truth is there are Pauls in this place right now. There are Peters, there are James, there are disciples here everywhere. And God, you want to work in and through them. And I, my prayer for this congregation, my church family, is that they would seek you with all that they are. And that they would get serious and say, God, show me what my commission, show me what my calling is, and then empower me to do it. But God, that they would take it further than that, that they would take the steps necessary to fulfill that mission. That they would trust upon you and the power of your spirit to give them the words to say and how to say them to just start with conversations that bring you up and then let the Holy Spirit take over. God, when you ascended to heaven, you left us with the Great Commission. That is really all of our callings. But within that calling, there are specific things you need each one of us to do based upon our temperament, based upon our history, based upon our giftings. Father, help us to identify that and to walk in it and then as we do, Lord, that you would bring us the joy, that joy that's unspeakable and full of glory and that peace that passes all understanding because we know that we are living for the one true God and that we are fulfilling what it is that you've asked us to accomplish. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I thank you for their faithfulness to you. I thank you that uh, they serve you and they tell others about you but God we know that our time is short and we know that if we don't get about ramping up our efforts that there's going to be many who are going to die in their sin in our community and in our nation so Father would you impress upon us the importance of counting every encounter as a soul winning opportunity as an opportunity if nothing else to speak of your goodness to open that door so that they might walk through the doorway of faith and come to know you Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us, our conversations, the things we do, the places we go. Lord, that it would be glorifying to you and the sacrifice that Jesus made. I ask that we would be bringers of truth and of hope. We would not allow ourselves to get caught up in in negativity and the things that bring people down bring hope and encouragement to them. Father, I pray that your love in us and your spirit that indwells us would come shining through. That when people come into contact with us, they would know that we are believers of Christ because they sense your spirit in and on us. And Lord, let us not be afraid to share your goodness. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would keep us safe until we gather together again, until we come together into this house and to worship you. In the meantime, Lord, let them seek you with all that they are. And Father, I pray that you will reveal yourself to them in a new and an exciting way. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen.